We are back in action in some form or fashion. I don't even know. I got to tell you, I've never really understood the fascination with the British royal family. Okay, can I just say that? I know people have gotten really, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid of the 80s. And it just seemed like in the 80s, everything was, you know, Princess Diana and what's going on with her. I never, I never got it. You know, she's married to Prince Charles or was married to Prince Charles. And, you know, big pop artist like Elton John wrote, you know, songs or at least attributed songs to her. Uh, you know, she had two kids and there was a divorce. And I feel like the divorce, like, amplified everybody's fascination with the British royal family. Look. When Jackie and I, we had our 10-year anniversary, we went to England. And so I got to see, you know, the Buckingham Palace. And, you know, it's nice. It's good. Uh, I still didn't get it. I, I didn't get why we're so enamored with what's going on across the pond. You know? Then uh, I, uh, Jackie and I had, had children. And our daughter, who was just up here, I will now throw her under the bus. Uh, she became fascinated with... England, castles, sure, Buckingham Palace, sure, but she became enamored with two particular people that were in the British royal family, and that included, you know, Prince William and Prince Harry. In fact, she was so enamored with Harry, she named a cat after him. So we actually have a cat, and you know how much I feel about cats, how I feel about cats. Anyway, we have a cat named Harry, named after Prince Harry. And I think deep down, Emma may not admit this, but I think deep down she's still kind of bothered by the fact that Harry chose to marry the actress, you know, Meghan Markle or whatever, you know. But I, I think about this, when you think about royalty, even though in America we really don't have that, it's been a big thing in human history. I mean, kings and queens and being part of the royal family, like that held sway for most of human history. Right? I mean, there was a king, and there, you had to, like, you know, pay tribute to the king. And, and there was always, like, this idea that you're, a, you know, a peasant or whatever, and there's this royal family. And so that really dominated world history. But for us in America, obviously, we're, what, 300-some years old. We were set up differently than that. We weren't set up as a monarchy. We were set up as, you know, kind of like, I guess, Rome, more of a representative republic. So we don't really understand the whole thing with royalty, but it doesn't seem to stop American citizens from being enamored by the British royal family. But I, do, I will say this, okay? It would have been cool to have been born in a royal family. I think that would have been cool. I, I would have enjoyed that. You know, when you go to a party, you show up, and, you know, well, this is King Ben. You know, and I'd be like, yeah, it's me. It's King Ben. Now take a knee and kiss the ring, right? That would be, that'd be something I think that that's probably why the Lord didn't make me <laughs> in royalty because I couldn't, I couldn't handle that kind of pressure, that kind of power that would happen in the royal family. But, uh, but we're going to be talking about royalty today. We are, you're wondering why I even went down that road. We're, we're in a series in the book of Psalms, the largest book in the Bible, and I would argue one of the most spiritually forming books of the Bible. It's a collection of 150 psalms and prayers and poems that are powerful for us. And so we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be looking at psalms of royalty 
today. But I think about this, you know, royalty is something, again, that, that seems kind of foreign to us, but I think it's still important when we think about who is ultimately in charge. Even during this whole craziness that we've all been in, there is still a king of kings and of lord of lords. And he's not dissuaded or thrown off track by all that's been going on. He is still the king of kings and lord of lords. So today we're going to be going through again uh, another, another episode of our psalms, the prayers and songs of God's people, looking at the psalms. And if you've been with us the, the, the entire series, you know we've started with uh, different uh, themes. You know, there was the theme of wisdom. We got started with that one. And we had the, the theme of thanksgiving and the theme of lament, you know, when, when things don't go right, you know. Wisdom was one of those moments, kind of like the book of Proverbs, right? Where Proverbs says, hey, you work hard, and there's usually a good thing that happens with that. That's how 80 to 90% of life works. So we talked about wisdom psalms. And Thanksgiving is when God has done something, and you specifically thank him. And the research is out there that when we live thankful lives, it makes a difference. There's something in us when we're thankful. I mean, when you got up this morning... Lord, thank you that I get another day. Thank you that I live in a beautiful place like this. I mean, you can't look around in Oregon and not be thankful that you live in a beautiful place. So Thanksgiving is super important. Lament. We don't talk about lament a lot in the church circle, but it's important. In fact, lament psalms dominate the collection. Why is that? Because oftentimes we find that life does not operate like we had hoped. And so laments help us to express that before the Lord. He loves to hear from his children. Laments are when things are not right in the world. And laments give us voice to that. That we can speak that out to God. Even yell it to him, he can take it. And he loves us more than we could possibly imagine. Now, last week, if you were with us, we talked about psalms of imprecation. Now, we don't use that word a lot. It's a weird word. But there are times where we need to allow God's justice to reign. There are times when things are so off kilter that we need to give space for God to call in justice. There are moments where human justice doesn't do, do right. And we need God's divine judgment. And, and so we talked about that. We have to lean in. That's, it's in the Psalms. In fact, you can't read Psalm 137. One of the hardest chapters in the Bible is Psalm 137. But we have to leave room for God's justice. So we've been covering themes and genres throughout this entire book and this series. And so I hope you've kind of leaned in to hear that any emotion that we have, we can voice to God. That he wants to hear from us. Whether we're, we're thankful, whether we're having a tough time, whether we need some wisdom. Or sometimes when we're thinking about justice and judgment, that God's word is still so powerful. Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm Pastor Ben. Glad you're here today. Uh, this has been a weird season. Whether you're online with us today or you're in person, actually for the first time today since March, we're glad you're here. And if you're new with us, man, it's awesome that you're here. Uh, and if you're, you know, with, been with us for a while, just glad you're here. We're here to lift up the name of Jesus. It is Sunday. You know why we gather on Sundays? Because that's the day that changed human history forever. Sunday, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ of Nazareth died in front of lots of witnesses. And on Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. That's why this day is so important for us. It's part of our rhythm. 
because we remember that human history will never be the same because of Jesus Christ. That's why we gather. So I'm glad you're here. Let's lean into the idea of the Psalms today, but specifically the Royal Psalms. In fact, before we get there, I want to pray in a minute, but Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of my favorite uh, pastors of, of, a, of a previous era. He was a pastor of a Lutheran church, I think, in Germany. Right before the, 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 the World War II, he was involved there, but one of the things he did was he was a great researcher. In fact, he did a lot of work in the early church fathers. Now, you may not know what the early church fathers were, but remember, there were as the early church kind of emerged from the first century, people were writing about the church, and there were leaders that were talking about what these Christ followers were all about. And I love what St. Jerome, one of the like first or second century, he wrote this about early Christ followers. Listen to this. He said that one could hear the people of Jesus singing the psalms to each other in the fields and in the, the pathways and in the marketplace. Christians would be singing these psalms to each other. And, and St. Jerome witnessed this. And he, he said the people of God were using these all the time to, to, to basically encourage each other. They were using, these psalms have been used since the early days of the church. And that's why it's so important for us to lean in to these psalms because they impregnated the life of early Christ followers. And I think it does good for us even today in our modern, postmodern, super technical world that we're all in. These ancient songs and prayers and poems are so powerful. So let's pray and ask God to move. Father, we come before you. We recognize that you're in charge and we're not. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. Father, we're thankful that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we once again bow our heads and recognize that you are in charge. Father, speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, even in these psalms of royalty, that we would turn our attention on you, who is the true eternal royalty. And it's in Jesus, your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, find Psalm chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. If you've got a device or a Bible, find Psalm 2. That's where we're going to be. And we're going to look at this uh, psalm as a sense of, of royalty. Now, now, I realize, again, in our culture, we don't talk a lot about royalty, but for the people of God... Psalms like Psalm 2 were used probably as King David or King Saul or King Solomon. Some of the early kings of the Bible, the early kings of Israel, as they would gather, these psalms would be used as the people would gather and they would do homage to the king. And we're not really sure who wrote Psalm 2. We don't know. It's not attributed to anybody. It, was, it, it seemed like it, it might be David or maybe one of his associates, or maybe part of his, you know, kind of royal group that might have, penned, might have wrote this for us to see. We're not sure who, who did it, but these were written when they would have rituals and ceremonies around the king. Now, if you know the Old Testament, and we don't have to go all into that, but in the Old Testament, you had the people of God, and eventually they would form the nation of Israel. And this people of God were rescued in a powerful way by, by God's hand through Moses and, and, and Aaron. And, and, and these are the early stories of the Bible. But they formed this nation. Now, originally, God was supposed to be king. That's the way he set it up. It wasn't a monarchy. It was the, a godarchy. I don't even know if that's a real word. But God was supposed to be the king. But as the nation kind of moved forward, they were looking around at other nations and so the people of God said, you know, we really want our own king. We want, a, we want an earthly king. 
And even though the prophets warned them about it, Samuel warned them about it, you're not going to like this, this is not going to be a good thing, they wanted a king. So the first king of Israel was a guy named Saul. And he was chosen because he was really a wise leader. You know why he was chosen? Really? Because he was tall. Well, one of the reasons, okay? He was a tall guy. He stood up above other people. We were like, well, make him king. Like, That's not fair. Some of us that are, are height challenged, we feel a little bit of a problem with that. Like, uh, I feel like I, I should have got a shot at king. But he was tall. But that didn't work out so well. Then you had David. And many of us know the story of David. I mean, David was arguably the king of the golden era of Israel, right? Probably around the time that this psalm was originally penned. But then his son came to power. Now, Solomon was the next king, right? His son. Solomon shouldn't even have been king. Like, Solomon was like his seventh or eighth kid. Like, he shouldn't have been king. But God has a hand in these things, don't you know? God has a hand in human history. God has a hand in human governments and empires. He has a hand. And Solomon became king after David. God has a hand. Well, let's look at Psalm 2. So I'm going I'm to read it here on my device. You guys probably have it already pulled up on your device. Let's just read down this Psalm of royalty. Starting with verse 1. Here we go. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here we go. We have this psalm of royalty. And we have a number of themes here that you may not have recognized. First of all, we talk about a, a son. And we talk about a kingdom. And we talk about world powers. These are little hints that would tell us why in the early church, the early Christ followers picked this psalm up and said, that's Jesus. They started applying this psalm to Jesus. In fact, the early church writers used this psalm quite a bit because they said, do you see what we're seeing? Now, I don't think whoever originally penned this, I don't know if it was David or some, I don't know that they were thinking first century Jesus, Messiah. However, God has a hand in human history. And you see this in the prophets and you see this here. That this writer was talking about, maybe he was thinking of David or Solomon, but the New Testament writers picked up on this and went, wait a minute, we're talking about a son and a kingdom and one who is empowered over all. All of that was Jesus. Isn't that interesting that way back then, 
We already had a hint of a Messiah coming. Now, I realize this. In fact, in week one, didn't we talk about this? When we think about psalms and poems and even things we hear on the radio, oftentimes those have rhyme to them. You know, usually the, the end of the, 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 the stanza or whatever has a rhyme, you know. Rose, nose, oppose, whatever. Uh, I'm just making this up. A lot of times that's what we think of as poetry. But Hebrew poetry is a little different. Where Hebrew poetry, like this, use something called parallelism. That's a word you're not going to probably use a whole lot around the water cooler at work. But parallelism is this idea of stating one thing, and then the next line would say it again with slightly different words. And it was a very common thing in Hebrew poetry. Did you catch that in Psalm 2? No? Okay. Well, let's look at that a little bit. Let's look at the first few stanzas here. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Right? There's the thought. Next line, right? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. See, we have a parallel of thought. that almost It's the same idea, but told in, in, in a slightly different way. That was the way that the Hebrew poetry worked. So they may not have had rhyme, but they had structure. These were actual poems that they used to kind of bring emphasis on a particular situation. So there's a lot of parallelism of thought here. Now again, we, we don't know who it was, but I'm guessing it's someone who would see the king coming in to the throne room. And we have to kind of imagine it, right? Because we don't, we don't think of our presidents that way or whatever. You know, we don't think about, ooh, there's a Congress. We're gonna, but we don't think of it that way. But when the king would come in, it would signify that this is the, 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 the power that we bow down to. And so the psalmist is talking about this, how, how nations have to beware that this is the real power and our king is king. I like what one scholar said about this particular psalm. He said, this psalm kind of reminds us that the Lord is throned in heaven and he's the ultimate power and the dominion of the Son corresponds to the dominion of the Father as the sovereign Lord. So we get this idea of the Son and the Father are both there in the same breath. Another scholar, James Mays, wrote this. He said, this is the only text, now listen to this, this is the only text in the Old Testament that speaks of God's kingdom, Messiah, and Son in one place. Now, that may seem insignificant, but it's pretty significant because it's an Old Testament reference to what's going to happen when in the first century a guy named Jesus is born in a humble circumstance and becomes king of the universe. He was already king of the universe. We just got introduced to him. But back in the Old Testament, this is the one place in the Old Testament that shows all of that. In fact, John May, or James Mays continues. He said, this psalm deals with the question of power. It deals with the question of power. Where does power to control the powers at work in world history ultimately reside? Who has the ultimate power? The answer is given in the Messiah, the Son of God, to whom the sovereign of heaven has given the right and power to rule the world. Well, I realize that royalty is not something we often talk about. But the question for all of us is, who's the king right now in your life? This is something that we have to ask ourselves every day almost. Who is sitting on the throne of your life right now? Can you say, it's the Lord? Or 
are you in the position of authority in your life? You see, this is something we have to wrestle with. If we're saying Jesus is Lord, that is stating that, remember, like, again, most of human history understood this. When there is a king or when there is a Lord, that's the one who calls the shots. But I feel like in modern Christianity, we have kind of pushed him aside and said, well, we'll, we'll sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on my life. But ultimately, I got this. I got this. Isn't that the problem? Who is the king and the authority in your life? Who is the real king? Because if God is God and we're his subjects, then we're supposed to do the bidding of the king. And I think that's where this really hits home. Who's on the throne of your life? If he is Lord, that means he gets to call the shots and not you or not me. So that's the question. Who is sitting on the throne of your life today? I got to ask that question every day. I don't know about you. When I get up, I have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus said, well, if you're going to follow me, you got to take up your cross daily. That's, that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Are we going to do that today? Because it seems pretty easy to say, well, sure, but I got this. Come on. Right? Isn't that where we live? We say, sure, he's Lord, and we'll come and worship, and we'll sing some songs, but ultimately, I got this. Right? Isn't that what we do? Who is on the throne of our lives? And I'm going to quote a country song, and I apologize in advance, but I'm a country fan, okay? Here's the deal. How do we deal with royal psalms? I mean, I realize this is a small part of the, the, the collection of psalms, but they're important because it reminds us of who is on the throne and who has power. It's power more than any empire or any republic, power over any president or any royal family. God is king and Lord, and these royal psalms remind us of that. It puts us in the right place. And for you and I, if we're going to do this, if we're going to do this properly, when we, get a, when we get a glimpse of, of a royal psalm like this, it should remind every follower of Christ that we kneel and let Jesus take the wheel. We can't do it. I look around this room and I think, there are many of us who have tried to take the wheel way too many days, and it never works out. We take the wheel and it goes sideways so fast, but we got this. We think, you know, that was just a bad day. Nope, you, you, Jesus, you stay over there. Yeah, I'm going to serve you, but I got the wheel. How many days do we do this? And how many times are we going to do that and find we're in a ditch somewhere and we realize we can't do this anymore? How many times are we going to do it? We'll do it a lot. Some of us in this room have done it a lot. We think, oh, we can handle this. Look, Jesus is king. He alone deserves that place. If he's not on the throne, things go sideways so fast. Can I get a witness of any of that? Who's done it? We end up in the ditch every single time. But no, we got this. Next day rolls around, I got this. Jesus, you sit over there, and I got the wheel. If you're following Jesus, our position every single day, in fact, I think as Christ followers, we need to relearn the idea of actually getting on our knees in prayer. I know some of you have bad knees. I get that. But what it does, I have to do this. In my prayer time, I literally get on my knees. Why? I don't even want to tell you, I'm telling you this because it reminds me I'm not in charge. Jesus has to be the one in charge. And if he's not, I'm going to take this car and I'm going to, I'm going to crash it into a ditch every single time. I don't, care how, I don't care how good you think you are. 
Some of you are better than me, okay? I'll admit that. But when we take the wheel, we take it right to the ditch every time. Christ followers, our position is to kneel and let Jesus take the wheel. That's where it's at. You know what I'm saying? And these royal psalms remind us of this. I love what one scholar said. He said, you know, making Jesus the king of our lives and regularly remembering that he is on the throne is central to the normal Christian life, even more so in a pandemic or in any kind of adversity. This should have reminded us, these last three months or four months should have reminded us our idols are no match for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Not our health, not our career, not our money. These are idols that we've been bowing down to for way too long. Who is on the throne? It has to be Jesus. He is above every world power, every empire, every democracy. He is above all. We have to remember to kneel and let Jesus take the, take the wheel. Look, and I, I, I'm going to wrap this up. There's a book in the Bible called the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, it's in the New Testament part of the Bible if you've read it. There's something that the early church did that I think we need to really pay attention to. When they started taking the news of Jesus all over the Roman Empire, for the first time in human history, they could travel safely. I mean, it's amazing God's providence in the first century with Jesus coming. Because now you had hot and cold running water in Rome. You had safety. You could travel everywhere in the known world. The gospel went out from Jerusalem to all the ends of the earth. And what did the early church followers and the leaders, what did they say about Jesus? He's not just a great guy that you should follow. He is Lord. That was something that got many of them killed. Because in the first century, you know who was the only Lord? Caesar is Lord. Caesar. Whether that was Nero or Claudius or Domitian, it just kept going. And when the early church said, no, Jesus is Lord, that meant something. That cost them something. And now we sit around and we sing Jesus is Lord. The early church would have been like, that makes a huge difference on whether we're going to survive the next day. Jesus is Lord. In the early churches, they expanded. They said, no, Nero may have the kingship right now in Rome, but Jesus is Lord. Right? I think we need to remember that. These royal psalms remind us of that. God is still working in this deeply broken world. He is still interested in helping his children find hope and freedom and find forgiveness. God is still at work in this deeply broken world, and he wants us to be part of this. Look, we talked about Solomon earlier, right? I love what Solomon said toward the end of his life. If you've read Ecclesiastes or some of his writings, look, Solomon was a king, arguably maybe the richest king ever. I don't know. I mean, Solomon was pretty important. And Solomon, one of David's sons, remember, he shouldn't even have been king. He should not even have had that job. But God is at work in human empires. Solomon said this toward the end of his life. He said, you know what? At the end of the day, God is in heaven, and I'm here on earth. So I'm going to let my words be few. Even a king like Solomon understood where ultimate allegiance lies. He understood who's actually on the throne. Not any empire, not any Caesar, not any president. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one on the throne. We can learn from that. I like what Professor Tom Wright said a few years ago. God's kingdom is coming in and through the work of Jesus. Not by taking people away from this world, but by transforming 
things within this world. Bringing the sphere of earth into the presence and under the rule of heaven itself. You see, the Apostle Paul, he would go around telling people about Jesus and he would say, you know what? There is a King of Kings and there is a Lord of Lords and it ain't Caesar. It ain't Nero. It ain't Claudius. It's Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you kneel and let Jesus take the wheel. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for your love and faithfulness to us. Lord, we realize that as, even as we gather like this, both in person and online, that, Lord, there may be people that are listening in right now that have never made you King of kings and Lord of lords. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through, through all of this that's been going on, that you would draw people to yourself. And, Father, you made it simple. When we decide to follow Jesus, we believe. That's called faith. We believe that you are who you say you are and that you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life and die on a cross, but we raised to life to forgive us of sins and give us hope. And we, we, we repent of our sin. We turn away from the way we've been walking. We turn the way of Jesus, following him. Lord, we're thankful that you give us the opportunity to repent of our sin and that we can confess that you are Lord. We can say to the world that we're yours and we can be baptized into Christ. That is put into the water, buried to the old way of life brought out of the water to new life. And then we can begin walking the way of Jesus and remembering that, Father, you alone are king above all. And, Father, we can kneel and let you take the wheel every day. So, Lord, help us, Father, to walk that way this week, that we could show love to our neighbor, that we can be a friend to someone who needs a friend, that we can take your, God, your good news into the world around us. And we pray all this in Christ's name.